and there was a time where judgment was pronounced, I was going to die, and I prayed to the Lord, and he took it away. Mm-hmm. He, he extended my life. Um, maybe I need to do that and lead Israel to repent before God now, right. and that judgment won't take place in my descendants' lives either. It Maybe future generations will sin, and this judgment will come, but God might show mercy t- not just to me, but to my family. And I, and I think that's like how we all ought to respond to judgment. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church podcast. We are reading through the Bible in a year, and we are at week 40, which means after this episode, we will only have 12 episodes left. That's hard to believe. Is it? It is. It seems like it's been uh, many, many weeks. 40, in fact. Yeah, (laughs) because it has been. Um, But when we started, we had 52 weeks to record, and now we're down to 12. I mean, that it's crazy that it's gone this fast. I know. I can't believe how fast the summer went and then how fast September went. So, so wake, wake you up. Yeah, when September ends. I think that's a song. How does that song start? I know how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is probably an opportune time to note that if Matthew were with us, he would probably pull that song up on his phone and play a little bit for the listeners, but he's not with us today. Why is that? Um, He's working today. Yeah. Well, we have to probably let people know that we tried to record this podcast yesterday and none of us were really feeling it, so it wasn't worth posting. So we are trying to uh, do it again, but with the reschedule, Matthew couldn't join us. Yeah, so we will try to include some of his thoughts. I know that Yeah, maybe you can grab a clipping of anything from him that was worthwhile from our last one and get at least one sentence of Matthew in this podcast. He'll just be like, I don't get it. They're going back and forth, (laughs) just like ping pong, like the ping pong that we're hearing right now. Yep, though we have no ping pongers today. It is good to to say that it can be confusing to read Mm -hmm. these large sections of a collection of sermons from a prophet's life you know there's different the transitions in the sections um, but even different types of writing you know there's a couple different passages of poetry one that we're going to talk about today yeah and and there's narrative Mm -hmm. and and that's what we'll start with but i wonder aj how it hit you when you last week we're talking about isaiah as a compilation of his sermons um i i've always previously thought of books like Isaiah as, or maybe I've just imagined Isaiah sitting down and just writing everything that's going to go in this book. Just like Bilbo, maybe when he sits down, he's like concerning Judah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Is that how you've imagined Isaiah in some of these other books as well? I think at one time that is certainly true. You know, I have been exposed to other ideas about someone who would have collected sermons and arranged them in a specific way, like the way the Psalms are or something. So that's also kind of how I imagine it, but it mm-hmm. still makes it difficult to to be aware of that and to try to understand what why this is here and Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Psalms are a good parallel because those are collected 
um, taken from other situations, circumstances, and put together in a cohesive way that declares a particular message that can be traced. So even though when all of those psalms are being written individually, the whole of the Psalter wasn't in mind, the same is true for Isaiah's prophecies that are now collected here as preaching. Um, so like in, in Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2 are put together pretty much is an introduction to the Psalter, but whenever they were written originally, maybe they weren't together and they had there was no intention of this is going to head a whole book of Psalms. And I think we'll see that in Isaiah as well. What we find, especially at the start of our reading, is almost a word-for-word reduplication from Second Kings. So the observant reader Will, who's been going through with us, will recognize, oh, I've I've read this before. Um, and I think that, that helps us kind of imagine how the book is put together a little bit more. It pushes us to um, think about the actual situations that Isaiah was speaking into as we read this whole book, because it's not um, him just speaking into one thing. He's speaking into the course of Israel's experience and history and future. So speaking of where he's speaking into, where are we at in Isaiah for this portion of the reading? Yeah, that's a good question. So I laid out the structure of Isaiah in our last episode, and I am following structures that other people have put together, so I'm not coming up with this on my own. Uh, But chapters 1 through 6 is really the introduction, and then 7 through 12 are the prophecies and preaching of Isaiah during the time of Ahaz's kingship. He was an evil guy, so obviously what Isaiah has to say is pretty negative. And then in chapters 13 through 23, Isaiah is giving oracles of judgment against other nations, which should stand as a warning for Israel not to rely on those other nations, but to return to the Lord. So you have to remember that during this time, the kingdom is divided. So there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. What do you mean by rely on other nations? So when Israel is facing the judgment of God and they're experiencing war or famine or something like that, they need to repent and return to the Lord and uh, submit to his guidance. And that will be what allows them to defeat their enemies instead of for example, going to the Egyptians to get help fighting the Assyrians who are at Israel's doorstep as an act of judgment by God. So they try to circumvent God's judgment, not through repentance, which is the right way to do it, but through relying on a foreign nation. Okay, that's helpful. And we'll see some of that in in what we read today. But then there's like a little apocalypse described in chapters 24 through 27, you know, these scenes of judgment. And then chapters 28 through 35, there are oracles of judgment against Israel. So we read all of those last time. And um, then we, 35 through 39, we have Isaiah's preaching during the time of Hezekiah. And in this again, you know, Hezekiah is somewhat faithful, but he also makes some grave errors. And there will be a mix of judgment and hope in this text, but Remember, prophets don't just tell the future, they critique the present. So in the text that we'll observe, there is a pretty harsh critique on the present back then, Hezekiah's rule. Okay. Now, 
Once we get past that section, we get to chapter 40, which marks the transition, as you observed in our last recording of this episode that won't make it anywhere. Um, There's that transition where Yahweh is depicted as the genuine solution. You know, they're trying to escape his judgment, but the only way to do that is to return to him. And and that'll become clear in our reading today. Um, And then after that, you have the servant of the Lord. So chapters 44 through 53, the depiction of the servant of the Lord in the foolishness of idolatry. Um, So I think we read through chapter 47. So we'll get into that a little bit. How far did we read? 47. Okay. I think this, doesn't the servant of the Lord start a little bit earlier than 44? Maybe. Let's look at it. 42, maybe? Well, yeah, there might be an appearance. Oh, okay. But, but that's... Yeah. The, okay. But, well, I think what you're thinking of is Israel, my servant. Oh. Versus yep. the servant, you know, chapter 42, there's the servant that's described starting there. So, yeah, you're right. But then I think the focus really starts in chapter 44, um, where this servant is kind of contrasted with the idols that promise help and refuge. Yeah, that was an interesting chapter, that comparison. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I I would want to direct our readers to flip back to 2 Kings 19, or 2 Kings 18, I think, because that's really where this portion of Isaiah is drawn from. So if people are like, man, where where did, where did they grab these sermons of Isaiah from? Well, we don't know the chronology of how all these books were put together. Um, but if you go to Second Kings, you'll see almost word for word what takes place in Isaiah 37 through 40. So um, chapter 18, Hezekiah is introduced, and then... Uh, there's the invasion of Sennacherib. So if you look at chapter 18, verse 13, in the CSB, there's the label Sennacherib's invasion. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, I can't talk apparently. Um, that's that's exactly what's happening in chapter 36 of Isaiah, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So it's like word for word almost. Mm. And then as you go through... Um, you you will see everything is exactly the same. The only difference is that we get an additional prayer or poem by King Hezekiah in chapter 38 of Isaiah um, after he had recovered from his illness. So that's an addition. So interestingly, the addition in Isaiah isn't even Isaiah's words. It's the words of Hezekiah, which is really a psalm of praise after he's recovered. So um, I draw attention to Second Kings nineteen twenty. This then Isaiah son of Amos sent a message to Hezekiah. That's God's answer through Isaiah, and that's going to show up exactly word for word in Isaiah thirty seven twenty one. Then Isaiah son of Amos sent a message to Hezekiah. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, and then we get some you know, variances in Second Kings. I have heard your prayer to me about King Sennacherib, um, verse 21 of Isaiah 37, because you prayed to me about King Sennacherib. But it's a it's a pretty much equivalent telling of everything. Hmm. So then both Second Kings and Isaiah record Hezekiah's folly, where he's kind of showing off the palace and all of their riches and everything, trying to impress these foreign nations, Babylon in particular, 
And um, I, I think what's intended there is that Hezekiah is somewhat taking pride in himself, but then also pursuing an alliance with the king of Babylon. So it's not just a prideful uh, display that God's punished him for, but there's a little bit more going on here. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to remember which of the Brandon Sanderson books it is, but remember where there's the king, I think it's a king with this stone that's in a treasury, and when there's like visiting guests, he shows them the treasury. That's kind of what's going on here. It's a display of wealth and power, and it's almost like Babylon and Hezekiah are dating and seeing if they're interested in a partnership. You know, do, can you really offer what you say you offer? Would this be a good partnership? I, I think that's what's going on. Mm. Um, so, of course, then the word of judgment comes from God that says, um, everything that you showed this king of Babylon, it's going to be carried off to Babylon as an act of judgment against Israel. Well, it's strange, too, because it seems like what we just read up until this point it's, you know, Isaiah's been preaching against relying on the other nations, like you just said. And mm-hmm. now Hezekiah is courting Babylon. And why would things turn out differently than judgment yeah. from before? Yeah, exactly. So then when Hezekiah hears these words of judgment, he says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Now, you could read that if you stop there and say, oh, Hezekiah is like, recognizing this is a fitting judgment for for the sin of the nation. But his private thought was, it's good because I'm not going to be alive to see it. There will be peace and security in my day. So the judgment of God, I don't care about that. Why should I do anything? And and I think um, what we could miss as we read through this is that God has dealt with Hezekiah in a way that should be a living parable to guide Hezekiah's response in this instance. So if you remember that Hezekiah became terminally ill, so this is Isaiah 38, you can read it in 2 Kings as well, and the word of the Lord came from Isaiah to Hezekiah saying, set your house in order for you are about to die, you will not recover. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and pled for his kindness and mercy and faithfulness, even in the face of a word of judgment, of death, irrevocable, it seems. So now in this instance, when God says everything in Israel is going to be carried off to Babylon, and of course, this is in a string of bad kings and evil behavioral behavior in Israel, when Hezekiah hears that word of judgment, he shouldn't think oh, it's going to happen no matter what, and it won't happen in my day, so who cares? Instead, he should say, oh, but I know God is faithful and merciful, and there was a time where judgment was pronounced. I was going to die, and I prayed to the Lord, and he took it away. Mm-hmm. He He extended my life. Um, maybe I need to do that and lead Israel to repent before God now, right. and that judgment won't take place in my descendants' lives either. It Maybe... Future generations will sin and this judgment will come, but God might show mercy t- not just to me, but to my family. And I, and I think that's like how we all ought to respond to judgment is we have instances over and over where God relents and does not bring that judgment to pass, even though it's been spoken as if there's no relenting in God. 
Mm-hmm. He's he's merciful, and Hezekiah knew it, and and didn't respond appropriately here. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, you know we don't see any record of of him repenting before the Lord on behalf of the nation, and mm-hmm. so it seems like there's this transition, like you like you said in chapter forty, where we see maybe a word of comfort to the people who either know they're going out into exile or maybe they are in exile already. Do you have any comments about like the placement or timing of this? But I still think the message is the same. Yeah, so I think that this is now pointing forward. And it's a little bit hard, I think, for us to hear the comfort because we know the judgment is going to be there. And we can be like Hezekiah, who says, well, I don't care what God's going to do in the future. I only care what's going to happen to me in my lifetime. So these words of comfort could hit us as kind of empty, because even though there are words of comfort, it's very quickly followed up by words of judgment. So I guess part part of what I'd want to say here is that this word of comfort is intended for Israel in exile probably towards the end of the exile. And I think this is one of those complicating things about reading Isaiah, a collection of sermons, is that it's collected somewhat thematically and not necessarily chronologically. So that's why there can be words of comfort here that indicate the exile won't last forever, even though later on there's going to be really harsh words of judgment against um, those who commit idolatry but there will be a shift as we get into chapter 7, I think, especially where that word of judgment is now on the foreign nations, not on Israel alone. Yeah, so to me, when I read chapter 40 specifically, and you know, this message continues throughout, but and before, thinking about it and saying it out loud, Yahweh is the answer. Like Yahweh yeah. is the one who the nation should have trusted in and should have repented to. And so it seemed to me that as I read through chapter 40, we see Yahweh being the focus and Mm -hmm. he's compared to the things that the people had trusted in instead of God and will be tempted to in exile. Yeah. Okay. I saw God being compared to, and then the conclusion is God is way better than those things. Yeah. And that's a comfort because, you know, for one of these, you know, it's like the stars and the heavenly beings that the Babylonians looked up to. God created those and he named all of those and knows their names all, you know, and so having Yahweh be your God is way better than what, you know, the Babylonians or. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So I, I think I would compare this section of Isaiah to Deuteronomy. So it's like, In Deuteronomy, Israel is on the brink of getting into the promised land, and Moses is giving words of hope and blessing, but then also warnings of judgment if they live in a certain way. And here, in these sections, it seems like Israel's on the brink of leaving exile. You know, in this section, we get into Cyrus, who will send them home. And it's like these words are a prophetic voice that warns them against the idolatry that led them into exile to begin with. So know God, know who he is, and worship and serve him as you leave exile and go back into the land. 
because you don't want to experience this judgment all over again. That's helpful because that's a good comparison, especially it helps us, you know, what you just said grounds us in the comparison grounds us in understanding the text because we have comparable situation and Mm -hmm. um, something that we've already talked about a lot. And this, it just, it's just a chapter here and there's no, you know, kind of cuts from the narrative. So I think that's helpful to think about as we're, we're reading some, we're reading through the transition. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. You almost have to imagine 70 years have passed and it's right before they go back home. And I don't know if, was Isaiah even alive at the return from exile? I don't think so. Me either. I, I think it could have, do you think it's a prophetic word or do you yeah. think someone filled in the... No. So I think everything coming 40 and on are future things. Mm-hmm. So, well, there's that language in this text. There's this Old Testament scholar, Brevard Childs, who breaks Isaiah up into two parts. One, the the former things, which is chapters 1 through 39, things that have already happened pre-exile, and then the future things, chapter 40 and through the rest of the book. And God will even tell Israel, forget the former things. That's where that language comes from. Mm. And press forward with these instructions and the hope of the Lord's servant and in, in the restoration of Israel and all peoples. It's not a stretch to put ourselves in to the shoes of the Israelites, which we've said before and we've talked about, but even specifically here where we see these explicit comparisons with God versus lesser things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's really easy for us to forget God's majesty his glory, his power, um, his immensities. Immensities? Yeah, his immense. That works like, for me. I like it. I think it sounds good. Okay. Um, yeah, the way he has acted and how we are, we forget to trust him mm-hmm. and we we look around to things that we can see or things that are easier to trust in and we see that that doesn't lead to uh, prospering or flourishing. Uh, it leads to being exhausted and tired and judgment. And so at the end of chapter 40, I think that these well-known verses about trusting in God and he'll renew your strength and you'll soar on the wings of eagles. I think before we've said that's not just for something that you can write on the locker room door Mm -hmm. before you go and play whatever sport. Um, This is a word to people about who they should be trusting in and by putting their trust in, in God that he will enable them to walk in the way that that he's called them. Yeah, I think the comparisons that he makes throughout chapter 40 are really important for rightly hearing the popular verse 31, where God is comparing himself with other nations, with money, with idols, with anything that's been made pretty much, and anything that's been grown by God on the earth. So he's comparing himself with all of these things, and he's telling them, why are you relying on these things and worshiping these things when I created all of them? Like, those things all deteriorate. They run out of life. I give life. So if you lean on these things, their strength is going to go away, and you're going to topple over. But if you lean on me, the giver of all strength, you're not going to fall. Instead, you'll soar. Um, you'll, You'll run and not become weary. You'll walk and not faint. So return to him and live in his ways as you return to the land. There's a lot to be said when we get into Ephesians with these yeah. these sections with Isaiah, but I think it's helpful to keep in mind 
uh, the reading that we that we have here as we we read through and meditate on the passages in Ephesians where Paul is telling the Ephesians to confidently and boldly come before God in prayer mm-hmm. and well and to stand firm right? right so he is here telling people you know that the youths become faint and weary the young men stumble and fall but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength so as you stand firm you you need to lean on the Lord right and we can do that because of how great God is and because he's the sustainer of of all and he doesn't he doesn't learn anything new that yep. you know would change something so um i just bef- i know we're getting ahead of ourselves but before we get there i think it's helpful to make note that you know we have a description of god here and his character and so that's helpful as we as we read the new testament yeah and i think the new testament authors are all reading the old testament they're reading these texts and it's interesting how when we're reading an Old Testament text like this and then different New Testament texts, it informs our reading of that New Testament text that we're observing. And we can almost imagine these New Testament authors reading an Old Testament text like this and then reflecting on it and allowing that to drive their instructions to the church. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking about this as I work on my sermon for James on Sunday, where James is saying, listen up, you wealthy materialists, like all of your possessions, they're corroded and rusting away. They're deteriorating, they're moth-eaten, and they they won't last. They can't do anything for you. And it's almost like he's picking up on Isaiah's language for all of these false gods, these idols that are made of wood. That's what we get into in chapters um, 44, where, where there's this comparison between like wood that's cut down and, you know, you use part of it to light your fire to stay warm, part of it to heat your oven to make bread, and then part of it you construct this idol and worship that thing. And it can't do anything for you. And it's like James is saying, you guys are worshiping money and clothes and everything else and they're falling apart. They can't do anything for you. Instead, they're just going to consume you and poison you and there'll be a testimony against you. So it it is interesting how as we read Old Testament text, it informs our reading of the New, where now in James chapter 5, I see James preaching not just against having money, but against idolatry, trying to make something do what only God can do. So in Isaiah 44, it's trying to make a piece of wood do what only God can do and be God for you. Well, in James 5, it's money and possessions. Mm. So maybe I can test something out on you, and you can tell me if this is clear. This is like a little sermon preview. Okay. Here it is. The foolishness of idolatry is evident whenever we're given the grace to see it for what it is, but an Old Testament illustration may help us see the foolishness of materialistic idolatry on par with idol idolatry, pagan idolatry. Uh, The Old Testament prophets regularly critiqued Israel's idolatrous practices with a healthy dose of sarcasm and snark. In Isaiah 44, the prophet describes a scene where a person cuts down a tree and uses some of it as fuel for a fire to keep warm, some as a fuel to heat an oven to make bread, and some of it to make it into a god for worship. Um, he points out the foolishness of this, and then I just have a couple verses, Isaiah 44, 19, and 20 that I quote. Um And there we see the foolishness and idolatry of the person who takes a good thing, cedar or cypress or oak wood, and uses it according to its proper use in one instance, 
but then demands the wood to be something that it was never intended to be in another, um, to be a good deserving of worship that promises health and strength. And this is precisely what we're tempted to do with material goods as well. We try to make them to be something they aren't intended to be. We set them up as gods, demanding that they do for us something that they were never intended to do. Just as a piece of wood that can be fashioned into an idol can be worshipped and destroyed in a fire, so too materials decay and can be consumed in a fire as well. Mm. It's kind of like what James is getting at, where it's a fire that consumes. So when when I was reading James, I was like, man, this sounds exactly the same. You know, their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Mm. It's like, man, he's he's speaking with the prophetic voice for sure. Um, but those things can they they can never deliver because they always decay and deteriorate. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, and it's definitely very, very similar to what Isaiah was saying. And I think that starts even a little bit earlier in chapter 40, too, where, um, you know, it's like a craftsman makes this idol out of wood and he's got to clothe it by putting gold and silver, gold on it and a, make it a silver chain. And the chain is, yep. you got to make a chain so someone doesn't come and steal your God because that'd be embarrassing if someone stole your God. And then you got to make sure you use like some good wood because otherwise it'll rot. Yeah. You know, it'd be embarrassing if your, your little idol rotted away. So. Yep. And you need a skilled craftsman who can make one so that that it won't fall over. That would also be. And what does that remind us of from our Old Testament reading? The idol of Dagon falling down. Yeah. In the ark. Yeah, exactly. So I think the more that we know Israel's history and the more we've read Genesis through Second Chronicles in our ordering, the more we'll catch on to what Isaiah is saying here. Um, you you try to set up idols that can resist God by giving them a bigger base, right. you know. <laughs> you know, um, but it doesn't do anything. It's going to fall over. Yep. Well, we keep reading in Isaiah and encounter more words of blessing and instruction, and then towards the end of our reading for this week, we encounter words of judgment against Babylon and these other nations who refuse to submit to the Lord. And it's interesting that often God will use these pagan nations as instruments of judgment against Israel, but then these nations become proud in and of themselves, and because they don't attribute glory to the Lord for their successes, God also brings judgment on them. So in terms of judgment, God is an equal opportunist. He's he's going to put out judgment on any who try to take his place, and that's a good warning for everybody Israel included. These people that you rely on, they are not uh, safe from God's judgment either. So keep returning to the Lord. And I think that's what we all need to do. And uh, we have New Testament authors who instruct us in the exact same way. is They recapitulate Israel's story, but now for the church. And that's what we find as we transition to the book of Ephesians. Now, A.J., not too long ago, I preached through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So all of those sermons are online if someone's looking for more in-depth study. But I want to repeat an argument that I made there, which is that pretty much the whole letter to the Ephesians follows the same structure as the Pentateuch, and especially the book of Exodus. So I just want to highlight a few of these things as people move through the book of Ephesians. And the purpose for this is to say we're being folded into the story of God's redemption from the very beginning. 
So we're supposed to see ourselves as participating in the redemption that God has brought for his people from the very beginning. So the Pentateuch starts, really, Exodus starts with redemption from Egypt, and Ephesians starts with redemption from sin. And in that opening chapter, Paul switches between you and us or we, and the point is he's talking to Jews and Gentiles and saying now in this new exodus, in this new act of redemption, it's not redeeming Israel from the Gentiles. It's redeeming Jews and Gentiles together from sin. So we're we're one new person now, but but we're being redeemed from sin just like Israel was redeemed from Egypt. And then as you think about Exodus, there's this new humanity that's born, this new nation, this firstborn son. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 17, I think, or maybe 29, something like that, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And you think about these that final plague on the firstborn son in each household that brought death. Um, well, in chapter 2, there's a new humanity, a new nation, God's household. So it's like he has many children now in his household as the two become one, as that wall of hostility is torn down between Jew and Gentile, and out of the two, there's one new man that's made. And then in Exodus, there's instructions for the tabernacle and temple for God's presence to dwell with Israel, and that's how chapter 2 of Ephesians ends, where God is building the church up as a temple, a, a dwelling place for God's presence by his Spirit. And then in Exodus, you get the law code or this old covenant legislation, these instructions of how to live. Well, in Ephesians, you now get a law code, but it's Christ's commands, the new covenant community legislation. And that that's intended to direct the life of the church, of God's new humanity, of his people. And then as you get into Exodus, it kind of ends with this warfare and conquest, preparing Israel uh, to go to the promised land. And that's the exact same way that Ephesians ends with this warfare and conquest, but this time not against flesh and blood and not located to one isolated part of the globe, but everywhere God's presence should be taken. So we fight, we put on all of the armor, and we fight against all of these principalities and powers that ultimately have already been defeated by Christ, um, but that we continue his mission and advance in the world through the the declaration of the gospel. So I, I see a retelling of Israel's redemption in Exodus, in Ephesians, but not just for Israel, for all people. Right, not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. And so it seemed like Paul is is still addressing um, that union of peoples, God's true people, to the Ephesians. And it seems like this letter has a more positive tone than some of the other letters where he calls them faithful believers at the beginning and, and greets them like he greets everyone. But um, it does seem like it's a, it's a positive, encouraging letter with, of course, warnings. Yeah, I think on the whole it is. And there, you know, he's dealing with some challenges in that church or in many churches. Obviously, it seems Jews and Gentiles are not operating in covenant faithfulness with one another. And I get the impression in chapter 2 that it may be that some Jewish Christians were thinking that they had a more privileged standing before God because of their Jewish identity. And that's why he takes all that time in chapters 1 and 2 to say, no, we've all been chosen. We've all been 
drawn by God, made his inheritance. And you two don't have separate identities now. Out, out of the two, Jew and Gentile, Gentile, there's one new man. It's the, the first one flesh union, we might say, um, that will be pictured later on in marriage with Christ in the church is first here uh, with Israel, Jews, and Gentiles. And I think grabbing onto that one new man language is important for later on in chapter four, where he says to put on the new man. Sometimes we think of that individually, like put on the new Aaron, who's better than the pagan Aaron was. Mm -hmm. Well, here he's saying, no, as an assembly, like put on this new man, this new identity that you have in Christ as the one people of God. And then he starts to tell us what that looks like, right? Yeah, exactly. And and I think particularly in relational terms, so in chapter 4, verse 23, as he tells them to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new man, I think poorly translated in the CSB is the new self, What is, what is you, you lose the connection. So in chapter 4, verse 24, it says to put on the new self, it, it should be the new man to keep the connection with chapter 2. The NLT says put on your new nature. Yeah, mm. not helpful. Yeah. Because it's to put on the new man, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Well, that's what was just described in chapter two. And there, you know, so now you're one body. Therefore, put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members one of another. So right again, it's a reference to these Jews and Gentiles becoming one. You're members one of another now. So be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't steal. Do honest work. Don't use speech that will tear people down, but to build them up for someone in need and minister grace. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit, which who is given to both Jew and Gentile. Um, you're sealed by him for the day of redemption. So you get into all of these things of the life of the community together. So putting on the new man is relating to one another with your new humanity in Christ. Um, so th there's good application for us, but we also need to hear this as a direct word to a divided congregation. Right. And it's instructive for us as we think about what the church should be and what it can tell non-believers. You know, it can be that as the church is unified and serves one another and is encouraging one another daily and is working towards glorifying God by being life-giving to one another. We are a light to unbelievers, and mm -hmm. that's the way a church should be attractive to to the surrounding world. And it's it would be a sweet thing to be involved in mm -hmm. as a member, as one who's contributing towards that goal. Yeah, and if Paul expects Jews and Gentiles who are not getting along for a variety of reasons— to understand their unity in Christ that they're to maintain, um, how much more would he expect a church of pretty much all Gentiles to do that? Right. You know, so it's like, yeah, the direct application does feed into our church, even though we're not dealing with the same kind of division. I think modern churches, you know, we, we're talking from our American Minnesotan context, our, our churches can be divided over any number of things, and I don't think Paul would be happy with that. And you've talked about that recently in Bible classes about, or issues that that do divide churches and 
the different ways to to deal with that. Um, mm-hmm. We don't need to talk about that now, but people can look up those Bible class recordings. Mm-hmm. The first couple chapters of Ephesians, I, I found the whole book encouraging, but the first couple chapters, it's it reminded me when you said in reference to Romans 8 about something that Jared Wilson said that many people would probably find it helpful to read Romans 8 every single day mm-hmm. as a reminder because of the way that you're wired and to just be reminded of what we have in Christ and what we have in the spiritual blessings that that God has given us. And so I found that this in a similar way to where there's so much that's encouraging to meditate on in the first couple chapters. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think um, some of us should read texts like this over and over and over again, and we'll find great hope and comfort and encouragement there. I think the caution that I would want to give is that I would want people to attend to the corporate nature of everything in chapter one. So I used to read Ephesians 1 as all about individual election and choosing or something like that, and it was just about me. When Paul is talking to Jews and Gentiles, and it's about them, and therefore about us, but it's first about us before it can be about me as an individual. So even in reading these texts, there's a way of cultivating a me-centered relationship with God or a me-centered comfort or a me-centered identity when Paul's trying to like do the exact opposite. It's not about you. It's about God's people in different places, in different times. And so so the electing grace of God is way bigger than just me. Um, and as we find comfort in this, I think it should push us then to find comfort in it with other Christians instead of just by ourselves. That's helpful because that is our tendency, right? Is to just think about ourselves and what what can I get out of this this time or this letter? What, how, how am I going to get this for me? But it, we really understand what Paul's saying when we read it in context. Yeah, and we can be forgiven a little bit because, well, obviously because Christ forgives us, but in our translations in English— it's hard to catch the plural yous here. You know, we we just have one you word that could be singular or plural. So then when we read you, we might default into thinking, oh, me individually, when it's actually plural. plural. It's an address to this church. So as an example, in chapter three, I think I mentioned earlier, Paul is saying you can come boldly before God with your requests should I take that same reading towards like that's a that's to the church, not personally? You should, I mean, or can I do both? Can I also read the use singular and plural earlier? Yeah, which verse are here? you looking at in particular? Twelve. Yeah, in Him we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. I mean, I I'd, I'd say there in Him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And it is true that there's an I in every we, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, I, I think I'd also want to say, let's be cautious that we don't make Christianity and my relationship with God just a thing about me. 
you know, everything in this section is corporate instruction for the church to come before God together. And that's what he'll get at in chapter five as he's telling people to um, live in a way together before God that involves singing and praying and giving thanks and these sorts of things. So the drawing near to God, standing before him, I think does have individual elements, um, but we shouldn't allow those to overshadow our life in Christ together. So now you got to clarify this. So now are we even talking about verse 12 being about prayer or is it just a way of, of living as Jews and Gentiles boldly and confidently in unity before God? So, cause I yeah. have definitely heard it specifically references prayer and it kind of seems like, yeah, that's so, the way I read it earlier today, but it, now I'm, now I'm quickly Pedaling backwards. Yeah, so I think probably there's a confusion between Ephesians and Hebrews, where um, Paul in Ephesians is saying, look, I know I'm in prison, I know you're discouraged, but you need to be bold and confident, because this doesn't keep us apart from God. God meets me in prison, um, and he meets you. So we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And what's that access to? Well, to the mystery, to the things that have been hidden, to the eternal purpose, ultimately to God himself, to these incalculable riches in Christ. Um, so it's not wrong to apply that to prayer, but I think the where we get prayer and worship language a little bit more is in Hebrews, where because Christ did all of these things, he, we have a better mediator, we have access, let's draw near with boldness to the throne of grace. So the idea is right, but maybe not from this text. Yeah, and I think you could get there, even though that's not the primary thing that he's getting to. Okay. Um, I think he's saying we have boldness, bold and confident access ultimately to God and all that he offers through Christ. So the idea is there. But here he's dealing with discouragement that Christians may be feeling because their leader, Paul, is in prison. So it looks like this Christianity thing isn't really doing much for them. Hmm. Man, I still think like a lot of these application things I wrote down, it was all like personally, you know, and I'm like, that's okay. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Because I th- like I said, there's an I in every we. There yeah. are lots of I's in okay. every we. And we have, you know, we, we need to live as Christians individually wherever we are. True. But I just want to warn people against reading these letters as if Paul is writing to individual Christians. You You can't obey these letters in isolation from other Christians. How, how can we do these one and others if mm-hmm. we're not living with others? And that's what Paul starts to say as we continue to move through the book in chapter 4. He talks about living a life worthy of, of the calling. It's not a life that is just about knowledge and doctrine, but it's it's being lived out in the community. And I think that is tough to do for some of these uh, instructions. You know, always be humble and gentle. Like, oh man, stop right there. I, yeah, I, that's not me. Uh, I wanna, I want to be prideful and harsh because I want my way. I want my kingdom to be built. Yeah, I want my will to be done. Yep, those sorts of things. And so I, I think that's very convicting. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And and again, I would just want to say what I've already been saying, which is if Keep we saying it, if we take a very individual approach to Christianity then even pursuit of the virtues and obedience to the commands in these texts 
are still going to be me-centered and shallow and empty because Paul doesn't say, um, let you grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. He says, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. So our individual growth can't happen apart from other Christians. And we might wrongly think that we're going to fully manifest all of the attributes of Christ individually. And that's not the case. And we can become very, very quickly discouraged. But if we say, no, my spiritual life is very much connected to other believers, as we connect with them and do life with them, we start to see, oh, even though individually, if I look at all of us as individuals, there are parts of Christ that are not there. When we come together, we start to see more of Christ as we grow up into him in every way. What you just said right there, I feel like a lot of people miss. They they don't, or maybe I'm just talking about me here, but I want to suggest that maybe it's more than just me, but we need other people and we cannot fulfill what is being called here to do by ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful when we continue reading the rest of the book, when we talk when Paul brings up marriage and parenting, Mm -hmm. those are also things that you cannot do on your own. You need to be connected with a body of believers who will help you and encourage you because they are contributing to the gifts that God has given them and the way that they act and exemplify Christ. Yeah. As they speak into your life and, and you do the same to other believers. Yep. And we we can get in this mode where we're like, well, my marriage is my marriage. It's right. private. Um, my kids are my kids. I don't want anyone else speaking into that or telling me how I should parent. But it's interesting that Paul arranges this letter in a way that instructions for family life are subsumed underneath the instructions for the household of God. Yep. So it is in some way appropriate to have aspects of your life that are private clearly. Um, but you shouldn't be pursuing that on your own. You need the instruction and guidance of the Lord and of other Christians and the church. So I think one reason that people get discouraged in their marriages, in families, in their own spiritual life is they're trying to be Jesus, you know, thinking the best of someone. They're trying to demonstrate Jesus in every part of their life. And they keep coming up short and they're thinking the deficiency is in me. And that's partly true. But the other deficiency is that Christ shows up in other people in ways that he's not showing up in you. So when you all come together, you start to see more of Christ. So don't get discouraged because you're not showing all of Christ. That'll happen someday when we're glorified. But until then, we show all of Christ as a community of faith. And I think that also shows up exactly what what you were saying, just from another angle, is where, you know, you're at church or you're at a gathering and it's great and you're being encouraged. And then when you leave, it seems like something's missing or you mm-hmm. can't, you can't replicate exactly what that encouraging time or, or those, those gifts or whatever in a different setting when you're isolated and mm-hmm. you don't make that connection, but um, you think that you should be able to, cause of course it's about me. Yeah. Like, yeah. Becoming part of that interdependent community. Um, and I think this really pushes against two wrong ideas. One is that um, I will go to church when I feel like it or when I 
am more spiritual, you know, like, so I'm going through a hard time, so I just don't want to go to church. Well, that's exactly probably when you need to be with Christians more. Mm -hmm. But then it also pushes against this bad idea that you have to hit a certain growth mark to be long in a church, where instead you should be thinking the absence of Christ-likeness in my life makes me belong even more because I want to tap into that and be part of it. And I'm clearly failing to demonstrate Christ in a hundred ways in my own life. But as I connect with the community of Christians, I can participate in the display of Christ, even where I'm weak and lacking. And I think that's what Paul gets, gets into at times in this letter and others as he talks about uh, relating to one another in a way that you compensate for the weaknesses of other people. Part of that is you can display Christ where they aren't. And be gracious to other people and forgiving and forgiving other people's trespasses because God forgave your trespasses. That type of attitude, Paul, it seems like is sprinkling throughout here because he knows that that's going to be kind of tough too when with relationally, you know, people are, are sinful and flawed. So Mm-hmm. Um, there there needs to be forgiveness and grace. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd, I'd just point out again in Ephesians 4 where we should put on the new self then, this the new man, the new humanity, the whole church, we enter into that and become part of it is a vital part of our spiritual growth and development and life in Christ. Okay, so this is what I have written for chapter 5, verse 5. Nice. Paul connects greediness to idolatry. We know that Isaiah... From Isaiah that idolatry is stupid. And I think that Aaron will be addressing this on Sunday when he gets to James 5, addressing words to the rich. That's where my computer cut out when the power oh, went no. out this morning. So I'm glad that you elaborated more on that because yeah. I, I wanted to hit that. Okay. One. Yeah. Too bad you don't use a laptop that could just keep working. That's true. <laughs> I was working on Google Sheets anyway, so it would have immediately, like saved. I could have yeah. downloaded it, but... Yeah. I think there is a strong connection between Ephesians 5.5 5 and James 5 one through six, where every greedy person is an idolater and does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Like you got your inheritance on this earth. It reminds us of the rich man and Lazarus, for example. Uh, But the the New Testament authors don't have anything positive to say about materialists. And I think all of us are in danger of being materialists because that's the world we live in, Mm -hmm. in our neck of the woods anyway. I know there are other countries in the modern day that are not materialistically driven, um, but ours is, and we can become that way without even realizing it. I mean, I, I think I am it more often than I care to admit because I like nice things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't think that fighting materialism means we become hardcore utilitarians who can't appreciate things that are beautiful or artistic, um, but we can't worship them and make life all about those things. So we can appreciate these things. You know, that's good. I think God gives us abilities to create beautiful things to to appreciate, but we can't worship them. I would point people to my sermons on Ephesians 5, 23 or 22 through 6, 9 to deal with those household codes with husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. That's a really complicated thing. But I sometimes I preach sermons and I'm like, man, 
I wish I could redo that one. Or like down the road, it's like, ah, I think it should have been presented differently. But those were great. I, you don't think that. You know, um, I'm what I'm trying to say here is not that they're great, but that I think they might be helpful because it one of them was more like a history background lesson. And sometimes we don't have the time to do all that deep diving research and it's presented there that you can listen to it on two speed. I think it's pretty clear and helpful. Um, and I think there are so many resources out there on this that it's hard to even navigate them. So I, I think it's a helpful resource, not a perfect sermon. Well, AJ, we've pretty much walked through Ephesians, but I want to draw one connection between Ephesians and Isaiah 59, because I know we'll be reading that text in the next week. Um, In Isaiah 59, there's this description of God and Israel, and it goes kind of like this. The Lord is not weak to save, um, but iniquities separate Israel from God, and they have hands defiled by blood. Um, there's hope for light, but there's only darkness. So the and and no one can solve the problem. So God sends His arm, His servant, uh, who puts on righteousness as body armor, a helmet of salvation, and then through the servant, God will put His spirit or His spirit will put words in their mouth from now on and forever. Well, in Ephesians, it starts out in chapter one where there's the mighty working of God's strength. Um, that parallels with the Lord who is not weak to save. There's the blood of Christ who draws us near. Um, even though in Isaiah 59, there are iniquities that separate people from God and their hands are defiled by blood. Well, now the blood of Christ fixes that problem. Um, in Isaiah 59, where there's hope for light, but there's only darkness, through Christ, we who were once darkness are now light in the Lord. And so we are commissioned like the servant of the Lord to put on righteousness like armor and the helmet of salvation. And then where there's this promise that the spirit will put words in the mouth of God's people for now on and forever, we are instructed to pray at all times in the spirit to have those words um, coming from our mouths. So I think there are a lot of parallels between Isaiah 59 and Ephesians. So hopefully as our readers who have just finished Ephesians and will be getting into Isaiah 59 in the coming week, hopefully they'll be able to hear how Paul, who's been so influenced in his language and description by the the text of Isaiah and God's redeeming work of Israel. Does Paul borrow language in Philippians from Isaiah? Probably. I mean, I think Ephesians and Philippians are pretty closely thematically related, not as closely as Colossians and Ephesians, I don't think. But, you know, as we commented in our first episode on Isaiah, it's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. And Paul, who also wrote Romans, quotes over and over and over again from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is sometimes considered the fifth gospel because it pronounces Jesus so clearly and it's quoted so frequently by the New Testament authors. Thank you. That's helpful. Uh, I appreciated talking with you about Isaiah and Ephesians. And I appreciated talking with you. Because we did talk. We talked. Back and forth. Back and forth. Like a ping pong conversation. (laughs) Exactly. I've been encouraged. Hopefully you have. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, listeners, you have as well. Join us next time 
on the Resurrection Church Podcast as we complete the final 12 weeks of our reading through the Bible with Jesus plan.